Several years ago, I watched a BBC report uh, on um, drug abuse and homelessness in the West Midlands. Uh, it was on the BBC program called BBC Inside Out, uh, Inside Out, West Midlands to be exact. And as we watch this report, in the report we meet a man called Darren. He has been sleeping rough uh, on the streets of Birmingham since he got out of prison a, a year before. Darren has become addicted uh, to the synthetic cannabis called Black Mamba. Uh, he smokes it at night, and he does that so that he can pass out. You see, Black Mamba helps Darren uh, to cope with life. Uh, but it's taking its toll on him. As we watch this program, we see that it's taking its toll on him. Uh, he says, it's shutting down my body slowly. It's killing me, to be honest. That's what he says in the program. And then he says this, but I need it. I need it. You see, Darren is desperate to change his broken life, but he does not know where to turn for true and lasting help. He's longing for rescue, but he doesn't know how to be rescued. You know, the report, as I watched it, was a real eye-opener on the problems many people face in life. In fact, recently I watched a similar program about the drug abuse of fentanyl in the U.S., and we meet similar people there struggling. They want to get out of the situation, but they can't. As I watched that program, it reminded me just how difficult it is to turn your life around. It's very difficult. It's hard. At the same time, as I watched it, it reminded me that there's something of a Darren in all of us. Darren is not unique. In fact, we are Darren. Because all of us are longing for a better life. The scale of our problems on the surface may look different, but all of us long for a better life. Each one of us who are sat here this morning long to be rescued. All of us are broken people living in a broken world. All of us want our lives and the world we live in to get better. In short... Each one of us sat here this morning wants salvation. We all want salvation. We just differ from where we are looking for salvation. Yes, I know you're not going around asking, what must I do to be saved? But in some way you are asking, what must I do to be fulfilled in life? What must I do for my life to get better? To have meaning, to have purpose, to have an impact. Some, like Darren, are looking for fulfillment, of course, in substance abuse. Others are searching for it in having a relationship that completes them. Others are chasing it in hobbies, careers, technology, influences. Others cannot get out of bed except if they look to a celebrity to tell them to get out of bed. Others are looking for it in politics. Or even political structure. Nationalism is a big thing at the moment. People are looking to the nation state to define them and serve them. Others, of course, are looking for it in having better health. Their whole life is about getting more healthier. See, there are a lot of things people look to to serve them. But deep down, all of us know that none of these things can satisfy our longing for salvation. None of them can. These things can help us in one area for a time, but not all the time, right? 
They cannot give us a comprehensive and never-ending salvation that everyone wants. And it is easy to prove that because none of the things we look for can solve the fundamental problem we have as human beings is that we're going to die. We're going to die. So none of the things we're looking for can solve death. That's the proof right there. Which, of course, raises a very important question. Why are our lives like this? Why do we live in a world where people are not able to save themselves? Why do we live in a world of infinite desires and finite solutions, as the economists call it? Why do we have this problem of <laughs> scarcity? <laughs> we are not able to fulfill ourselves. We're not able to save ourselves. We, we cannot find lasting fulfillment. Why is that? The world agrees that this is the problem. But the world cannot give us the answer to that problem. Just ask your teacher at school. He or she won't give you the answer. At best, what they will tell you is, just, what are you talking about? That's just how life is. It's a basic question. It's a fundamental question. It's what we're living for to be fulfilled. But the world cannot really give us a lasting answer to why we lack fulfillment. Only the Bible gives us the answer. Only the Bible. And the Bible says life was not always like this. That's where the Bible starts. The Bible says God created us perfect. We once lived in a life, a life of perfect fulfillment. We lived a life without sin <clears throat> and suffering. But humanity chose to rebel against God. We listened to the lies of the devil and turned against God. And as a result, life is now infected by a spiritual virus that is called sin. All human beings, including yourself, you long to be saved because you are a sinner living with other sinners in a sinful world. And because we are all sinners, all of us are under the wrath and judgment of God. God is angry with our sin. And part of his judgment is that he has left us, as it were, to our own devices. That explains all the things and the chaos and the sin and the suffering we're seeing around us. Sin is judgment from God in itself. And because God is angry with us, because we are under his wrath and judgment, when we die, each one of us, by default, is added to suffer in hell for our sins forever. That is the default of every single human being. By default, we are heading to hell to suffer for our sin. And you know, there is nothing that any of us can do to change this situation. You see, all the things we do in our lives to make our lives better, they are like trying to heal a deep wound with a bandage. It may hide the wound on the surface, but inside... We are rotting away. Unless we go to the doctor to operate on us, we'll soon die away. Right? Friends, our sin is that wound. We need God to heal us from sin. We need God to come and rescue us from our sins so that we can live with him again. That's what we need. And you know what? All human beings sense this. Oh, human being, no, this is true. Why do I say that? Because that is why we have so many religions. 
That's why we have many religions. Why? Because religion is about man searching for God to come and save us from our sin. You see, all the religions of the world tell us one story. They tell us that we must work hard to make God be good to us and then hope for a better life. They recognize there's a problem, the plast of our wound, and they then all say, look, you must, how do you address this big problem we've got? You must work hard to make God love you and then hope for the best when you die. That's what all the religions say. But Christianity is not like man-made religions of this world. The truth of Jesus is not about us searching for God and hoping that somehow God will save us. Now, friend, the good news of the Bible is that 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 sets it apart from everything else is that God has come down to be our king. He has become one of us. All the religions are saying, look, God is up there. We must look and search for him. Christianity says, no. Yes, God is up there, but he has come down now in the person of Jesus. He has come to save us. He has come to live as one of us. He has come to live a perfect life and then go to the cross to pay the punishment for our rebellion against him on the cross and to rise from death to give us new life. You see, instead of God looking at the wound of our sin and telling us to heal ourselves, oh, friends, our God has come in Jesus with the healing gel of his blood to heal our sin. This is the heart of Christianity, friend. It's what separates Christianity from all other religions. Jesus is God coming to be our Savior King. Now, for the grown-ups who have been with us here, over the last few months, we've been learning this truth as we continue our study in Luke. <clears throat> we'll be going through chapter 1 to 2. we we'll finished that. We have seen how the king, that the king has come. King Jesus has been born. We've seen that. We've seen him as a, as a, as a 12-year-old. And we've learned about something about uh, his early young adult years. And now we have arrived this morning at Luke chapter 3. King Jesus has come to service and is about 30 years old. He's about to begin his work of ministry that will culminate in him going to the cross to lay down his life for our sin. That's where we are headed. That's where Luke is taking us. But before Jesus does that, God has appointed one of the, our king's cousins to prepare the people for King Jesus. So that the people are not caught off guard. And the man's name is John the Baptist. Uh, we last met him in chapter 1 as a baby. Uh, he's the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Well, 30 years later now, John is 30, of course. He's just six months older than our king. And today we're going to look at a passage where God now officially commissions John for his public ministry. He tells him to start the work of preparing the people to welcome King Jesus. Let's read again verse 1 to 6. That's what we are focusing on this morning. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Traconitis, 
and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Cephas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went in all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be lifted, shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What is Luke teaching us there in those verses as he introduces John the Baptist to us? Well, the key truth Luke is teaching us in this passage is simply this. It is that God is committed to save all who welcome King Jesus as their king. This passage is showing us something about God's commitment as he fulfills that promise of sending John the Baptist. And it's also giving us the condition for how we can be part of this kingdom, which is we must welcome King Jesus as our king. And hence, that point there, which we look at this morning, God is committed to serve all who welcome Jesus as their king. You know, sometimes the people promise us to do something nice for us, right? Maybe give us a call during the week. Or perhaps they'll say, I'll take you out for a meal. Or may, they may even say, I'll buy you a new gadget, right? People make all sorts of promises, right? And usually their heart is willing. But we know from experience, perhaps, of being around them, we, we know that they are not always as committed to doing what they want. Why? Because some, even though human beings can be willing to do something, sometimes we forget. Sometimes something changes our good plans. We are willing, but we are not committed. We can't always be 100% devoted. God is not like that. God is not just willing to serve us. He is also devoted to doing it. God is fully committed to serve all who truly welcome King Jesus. That's what Luke is teaching us in verse 1 to 6. And he starts teaching us this in a way we don't expect. Right? Luke first gives us a list of names of rulers and leaders in verse 1. Names that are probably not as familiar to us, right? But they would have been very familiar to the people at the time. He says in verse 1 to 2, in the 15th year, that's the time, he's giving us the time when John has arrived. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Cephas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. You know, I like watching a, a segment on Euronews, right? It's a TV channel that shows news, right? But Euronews, and the segment I like watching on that channel is called No Comment, right? They just show you the pictures. The time can be two minutes, can be five minutes, sometimes can be ten minutes. They just show you the pictures, and literally there's no comment on it. 
They don't want to try and explain the story. They're just showing you the sights and sounds. No one is speaking. No spin behind it. It's just there. It's, I think it's news as it should be. It's just here. You hear the voices, everything, and you make up your mind. And the reason they do that is that the picture itself explains itself. They don't need to say anything. And as we look at this one to two, this is really what Luke is doing here. He doesn't need to say anything to, to Theophilus and Christian reading at this time. He just gives us a long list of rulers as a prop for John because he knows the message is obvious. It might not be obvious to us reading this 2,000 years later, but for them it was obvious. And the message is simply this. The people of God, as we read these names, are in a desperate situation. <clears throat> they need God to come and serve them. Why do I say that? Well, because the country has been occupied by the evil Roman dictator, Tiberius Caesar. That's the first name he gives us. He has chopped up Israel into provinces, and he has appointed other evil leaders to rule over it. Think of this like China taking over the UK, and then dividing it up with the worst sort of guys, people you wouldn't want to have for dinner at your house. Okay? The names may be familiar to us as we, if we have read the Bible. Pontius Pilate, he's in charge of Judea. This is in southern Israel. This is a corrupt man with zero respect for the Jews. He is the man who later crucified King Jesus. Galilee in northern Israel is under Herod Antipas. Don't confuse this with Herod the Great, who murdered the infant. No, this Herod Antipas is a son of Herod the Great. He's one of the three sons of Herod the Great, right? He's a, he's a, he's a man with a bad moral life. In his case, the apple truly has not fallen far from the tree because later on, we'll see him murder John the Baptist to please his perverse appetites. Philip is another son of Herod the Great. He's a bit better than Antipas, but just a bit. He has a poor moral life. In fact, he married his niece. He is ruling the east of the Jordan. Now, the other man mentioned here, we don't know much about him. His name is Lysanias. But like all rulers at this time who were appointed by Tiberius, he was likely to be corrupt and deeply immoral. By the way, Lysanias is a great example of why we should always trust the Bible. Because for some time, modern scholars claimed Luke made this man up. Why would they say that? Well, because there is another man called Lysanias who lived 40 years or more before the Lord Jesus Christ in a different part to Abelini. So some people started saying, look, you see, we can't trust the Bible. Clearly, Luke got his facts wrong. So if Luke can get this name wrong, how can we believe all the things that Luke is saying? But you know what happened? Later on, an inscription was found in Abelini, a territory north of Galilee, which directly mentions a tetrarch named Lysanias. And guess what? It is dated 11 AD to 29 AD, the period that... That, 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 that John the Baptist appears. Luke was, of course, right all along. 
And it's a reminder there, isn't it? That every time people challenge the Bible, they fall face flat. See, that is because the Bible, friend, is without error. We are not reading these names like they were made up. These are real people. This is a historical document, 2,000 years old, concerning real people. You can trust not only the truth of Lysanias, that Lysanias was a real man, or Tiberius was a real man, you can trust what Luke will tell us later, that what he's told us before, that the angels really did come, that Mary was really, really, Mary really did give birth to God in the flesh. You can trust that Jesus really did die on the cross for our sins. We must remember, friend, that good history and good science always agrees with the Bible. If science doesn't agree or history doesn't agree with the Bible today, at some point, it will catch up. It certainly will catch up in heaven. It will catch up. Trust the Bible. And I said to the young people here, read it. Believe it. Surrender yourself to the word of God. That is in passing, of course, isn't it? Back to our list. Next, what have we got? We've got Enos and Cephas. The word of the Lord in verse 3 says, during the high priesthood of Enos and Cephas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. So we have two more names there, Enos and Cephas. Who are these guys? Well, Cephas is the current high priest at this time. He is actually the son-in-law of Enos, who used to be the high priest. Both of these guys, of course, we meet them later at the trial of Jesus. Now, when Enos was removed by the Romans as high priest, he decided to play what the children may call pass the parcel, right? He did that with the priesthood. He decided to pass the office of the priesthood among his five sons. Each of them had a go at being high priest. And after he ran out, I think, out of sons, he decided to do what you expect him to do, isn't it? Given his record. To appoint his son-in-law now to be high priest. To make sure that the whole thing stays in the family. So when Luke tells us that Enos and Cephas, um, Enos and Cephas uh, have the high, the high priesthood, right? He is getting across to us that this is a time of religious degeneracy. It is a time of religious corruption. Look, he's saying the people of Israel are living in truly in dark times. They are being oppressed by foreigners who have taken away their land. They are being treated as second-class citizens. And really, they need the priesthood to help them to cry out to God. But the priesthood is corrupt, led by these two men. Cephas and Anus there as the puppet master behind the scene. But the good news Luke carries on is that God is still committed to serve them. And so he's sending John to prepare the people to welcome the Savior King. Let's read verse 2 to 6 there. The middle of verse 2 says, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That's where John has been staying for, 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 for decades, uh, for a few decades there. Perhaps he went there as a 10-year-old, or perhaps he went quite early. We don't know, right? But he's been in the desert, right? And the three says, and he went into, but now he's coming out, and he went into other region around the Jordan. 
proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You know, in the ancient, ancient world, when a king wanted to visit a part of his kingdom, what he did was he sent his spokesman to the people, a herald, to prepare the roads before he arrived, to make sure everything is well. It's a bit like an off-state inspection for you at school. You know, the boss is coming, so we've got to get ready, clean everything, be ready so that when the boss comes, when we come to be inspected, Everything we found well. That's what used to happen in the ancient world. Everything must be straight. The king can't have his carriage all over the place. Make the road straight. Ensure that everything is looking nice in his kingdom. Well, in verse 2 to 6, Luke is telling us that the king is coming. The Lord Jesus Christ. And God has appointed John as a herald, as a spokesman, to cry out before the people, to be ready before God comes. In verse 2, he tells God tells him that he is commissioning him to do the work. We read there that the word of the Lord has come to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And that is reminding us that though it has been 30 years since God promised to use John the Baptist to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus, God has not forgotten. God always keeps his promise. Right? We can trust God to fulfill his word. We've been waiting for the Lord Jesus to come for 2,000 years. It feels long time, isn't it? But just as God kept his word with John the Baptist for 30 years, sustaining him, keeping him, and releasing him at the right time, we can be confident that Christ is coming at the appointed time. And maybe you are crying out to God to do something in your life, and it, and it feels like God is taking time to deal with things. God is changing your life, he's transforming you, but it feels like it's slower. The, you'd like things to go much quicker. Trust him, friend. Trust the Lord. It took 30 years for John to be ready. The Lord, at the right time, will use you. Will work in your situation as he sees fit. Though it takes time, trust the purposes of God to come to fruition. And John is telling us here that God is committed, isn't he? He's committed to serve his people. He's keeping his promise to Zechariah and Israel. The king is coming to serve because God is keeps his promise. That's what he's telling us in verse 2. In verse 3, Luke tells us that John has now appeared and is preparing the people to be served by the king by urging them to repent of their sins and beg God to forgive them. Verse 3 says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. John is there, he's the preacher, isn't he? And perhaps we can say more about that uh, in passing. We can say John is a man who has heard the word of God. The word of God has said, proclaim the gospel. John hasn't come up with 50 excuses. You know, there are many excuses that John can give for why he can't preach the gospel. I've been living in the desert. I don't know the people I'm going to preach to. Uh, I, 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 I wear bad clothing. There are many reasons he might give. But no, John, we are told, obeys the word of God. And he goes out in verse 3. I wonder, maybe somebody here sat here this morning. You know God has commanded you to make disciples of all nations. 
It's there. It's a great commission. You know, God commands you to use your gifts. Have you made the transition from verse 2, with God commanding you, to verse 3, following John to obey? Have you? Or are you still rebelling against God? That's a thought for you to think about. So we see in verse 3 that John there is not like us. He, he obeys the word of God and he, he goes out there to preach um, repentance of, from sin and to show this repentance uh, by that we have been by being baptized. John is saying the salvation we need from God is not a change in our circumstances. God hasn't sent a politician to serve the world. He hasn't sent a philosopher. He has sent a preacher. And that is because the salvation we need is not something that will come from us. It's about God coming to deal with our sin. The problem is not Tiberius. The problem is not Herod. The problem is not Cephas. Removing them would just be a bandage on the deep wound. The real issue is Israel's sin. Our sin before God. They need God to come to serve them in Jesus. From their rebellion against him. Against him. To give them a new life with God. They need God to be their king. And the good news of this passage is that God has come to serve them in Jesus. But to benefit from this salvation, they must make sure they are not caught off guard by the coming of Jesus. That's the point of, that's the logic of John. They must soften their hearts to receive King Jesus by repenting of their sins and to show they have repented by being baptized publicly. And so we read that in verse 4 to 6, Luke says, John is speaking, in fact, what Luke is giving us here are the words that John himself speaks. Uh, we know that from reading um, uh, John chapter 1, the Apostle John's account, right? But in, essentially in verse 4 to 6, Luke is saying, everything John is doing to prepare the king is a fulfillment of what God promised in the Old Testament in Isaiah 40, verse 3 to 5. Let's read those words again. As it is written, okay, he's doing this because it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What is Luke saying? Luke is saying all human beings need salvation from God. And our God is committed to serve us because he has come in Jesus to be our king. He has come to rule over us. This is the reason God has raised John the Baptist. John has been born to announce the coming king, to prepare the people to welcome King Jesus. And John is telling the, the people this. Regardless of your situation, whether you are plunged into the valley of shameful sin, whether you have built up a mountain of everyday sins, whether your life is deeply crooked, or you only have a few rough patches of sin, you cannot save yourself. You need God to save you. And God has come to save you. And you welcome him by true repentance and faith in him. God is fully committed to save all who genuinely welcome Jesus as their king. That's essentially what Luke chapter 3 
verse 1 to 6, is teaching us. God is committed to serve all who welcome Jesus as their king. Now someone here may be thinking when we hear that, that sounds a lot like it's me doing it. I have to make my road to God, right? Does this mean that John the Baptist is teaching us that we are saved by what we do? No. John is clear, even here, that we are are saved by our king alone. It is all the work of King Jesus. Look carefully at John's quote from verse 5 to 6. He says, every valley, he's quoting Isaiah the prophet, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made long and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The key word there is shall, used five times in this passage. It is telling us that this is guaranteed to happen. John is saying God is committed to save those who welcome King Jesus, not because they have decided to do it, but because God has determined it. The king will serve whoever he wants to serve. He will be welcomed by those God has chosen from the foundation of the world to serve, to be in his kingdom. Salvation doesn't depend on any human being. Jesus hasn't come on a trial and error mission. God is not at the mercy of any human being. No, he has come for the elect. He has come to serve. And those whom he wants shall be served. Our King Jesus is the king who enables his subjects to obey whatever he commands. Those whom our king calls to himself come to him without fail. Dr. Luke is teaching us that God is committed to serve all whom God wants to serve and he serves us by enabling us to welcome Jesus as our king. Now the question here is obvious. Just said, the question here... The fundamental question is obvious. That each of us must answer this morning. Have you welcomed King Jesus as your king? The king has come. Have you welcomed him? I am not asking whether you believe that Jesus is the king. I am asking, can you say that Jesus is my king? Can you say that I know I am a sinner? I know there is nothing I can do to give myself true fulfillment. I know that the biggest problem in my life is not the world around me. It is not even other people. I know that I am the biggest problem. I know that my heart is full of sin. I know that I have broken God's law. And I break it all the time, and I will break it in the future. I know that. I know that I deserve to go to hell for my sin because God is holy. I know that I am not good enough for God. Can you say, I know that God has come to save me in Jesus? I know I'm a sinner, but I also know that God has come to save me in Jesus. That my King has come. I know that Jesus didn't just come for the world. He came for me to be my king. 
And my king has done for me what I could not do for myself. Can you say that? Can you say that the, I know my, the wages of my sin is death, but Jesus my king has gone to the cross to suffer and die for my sin. God the Father has punished my king, not merely for the sin of the person next to me, but for my sin. My king has died in my place. Condemned is stood in my place. Bearing the wrath and judgment of God for me. Can you say that? Can you say that my king not only died, but he rose from death to give me new life? My king Jesus is not merely the sacrificial king. He is a living king. And can you say, friend, as you sit here this morning, that I am putting all my trust in my king, in him and him alone. Can you say that Jesus is not just the king, friend? He is your king. He has truly forgiven your sins. He has given you a new heart that longs to know him more and more. And can you say that every day you are growing to know more of him? Growing to love him more. Yes, you are not what you should be. You are not even what you would be in another world. But you are not what you once were. Can you say that? Well, if the answer is no, friend, then you are not yet a true Christian. You are not yet a true Christian. And you need to hear that. And you need to accept that. That however mileage you've clocked in church, you do not yet belong to the king. But come now, John is telling us. Come now. The king has come. This very moment, come to him. Make a road of repentance to the king. Make your path straight. Repent, that's what John means. Cry out to your king to save you, to forgive you of your sin. Surrender to him and he will forgive you because that is why he has come. He has come to heal the deep wound of sin with the plaster of his blood. Say to him this very moment, you are the king of my heart now. I repent, genuinely mean it, repent before him, trust him. And friends, show the king that you are truly serious, you have truly repented by being baptized. People are not baptized with forgiven of sins. As we'll see later in two weeks' time, there are many who came to the Jordan who John can only call vipers. Not serious. Not everybody who enters the baptism pool is truly converted. But you cannot say you're truly converted if you are refusing to obey the command of the king. Because when the king has converted us, when the king has converted us, we love to obey his commandment. We show we love Jesus by obeying his commandment. So friend, if you're truly converted, get baptized. Because those truly who have welcomed King Jesus love to obey him. And this includes the command to be baptized. Friend, do not bow to your king on one knee, friend. Get down on both knees. Obey our Savior King in everything.
You're either trusting Jesus or you're not. Not our fear, our father. Our king is far greater than that. He deserves our whole heart. Do you know the king? Have you truly welcomed Jesus as your king? If you haven't, do it today. If the answer is yes, then you have welcomed the king. Then friend, keep growing in resting in Jesus, our king. That's what this passage demands from us. If you're a true follower of Jesus this morning, it's just one thing. There are many things it demands from us. I just want to leave you one thing. Keep growing in resting in Jesus in every situation you're in. Do not give in to the temptation to doubt the love and commitment of your king. No matter what situation you're in. Friends, I know that no matter how long we walk with Jesus, there will be moments in our lives when we are tempted to doubt the great love and commitment of our king to us. Maybe you're going through a period of sustained physical or mental illness that has left you feeling trapped or even overwhelmed. Perhaps you're in a situation at home or work that has left you feeling anxious. Or even perhaps in the life of the church. Or maybe specifically at home, you're perhaps worrying about what tomorrow holds for your family. Maybe you had set goals for your personal life at the beginning of the year, and they're already not turning out what you expect. And it's already leaving you feeling like a failure already, and we just began February. Or maybe it's simply that you have stumbled in some sin. And it has left you way down, no matter how much you confess it before God. You're trusting in God, but you are burdened by the devil's accusation that you are not of God. You know, there are many situations that make, us, that make it difficult for us to feel assured that God is in our corner. And perhaps you're feeling like that at the moment. I don't know what your situation is. I just want to tell you that you are not alone. Theophilus, the young Christian whom Luke wrote this record, would have also had circumstances in his life that tempted him to doubt our King Jesus. And Luke has included this record, as it were, not only to announce the, 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 the account of, of, of John the Baptist, but I think as a, as a personal comfort to Theophilus. He's saying to Theophilus and us, Oh, friend, you have a great and awesome king in Jesus. He is our true God who is committed to us. Oh, friend, there is no reason to doubt him, no matter what situation you're in. Do not be tempted by things that cannot save you. Don't look to false saviors in the world. There is no other savior, Luke is saying, apart from our king who has come. Keep trusting. Keep resting in King Jesus. Be confident that no matter what this world throws at you, because you have truly welcomed King Jesus, he is committed to care for you. Oh, you know that Jesus has produced a new change of direction in your life. You know that Jesus has given you new affections to live for him. You know that you are truly his, Luke is saying. You know that you were once outside his kingdom like the rest of the world. You know that you were once aptly hostile to God like Tiberius, like Herod, like Pilate, like Licinius. But our king has come for you, didn't he? He came to you with that one-way love pursuit of his. Our king Jesus died for you on the cross. 
and He convinced you of your sin. He made you truly repent of your sin. He did all of these things. It was all on Him. He is the King who does everything from beginning to end. Luke is saying, you know your relationship with King Jesus has always been a one-way love from Him to you. You contribute nothing. You have been served. You are being served. And you will be served because of His great love for you. So don't let the problems in your life make you doubt the love of our King. And if Luke was here, he would add this morning, resolve to grow in resting in our King. In whatever situation. He is a good King. A committed King. A faithful King. A loving King, Luke is saying. The problems in your life are not the sign that the King has deserted you, Luke is saying. You know your king is allowing these things to showcase his glory in your life. Friends, it is when the patient is extremely sick, that's when we see how brilliant the doctor is. And in the same way, it is at our worst, friends, that we see Christ's best. Be assured. Be assured, beloved, that King Jesus is a good king. The only good king. And he's working all things. In your life for his glory and your good. So keep resting in his care. We can trust our king in every situation, friend. In every situation, we can trust our king to provide for all that we need in this world. Because he has already saved us for himself with the contract of his own blood. Well, may the Lord make all of us here to truly welcome King Jesus as our King. And may we all truly grow in resting in King Jesus every day. Amen.